Well, let me invite you to turn in your Bibles to Luke chapter 1, as the children are leaving. And in Luke chapter 1, we'll find our place continuing there in verse 57. And while you're finding your place, I'd like to say a few words by way of introduction. I would note that um, um, with the hymns, I want uh, to encourage you as we gather together to think about the hymns, and even as you go from this place and, and uh, think about the sermon and the word that we hear read and the word that, that we read together as a congregation, think about how they all um, share common themes and how they come together. I'll point some of those ways out in our sermon this morning. But um, when, we, when we think about the coming of our Lord and His incarnation and His birth, we always need to remember that we're not... Um, thinking about something that's held apart from the cross and his death for our sins and the resurrection. And very often, uh, we order the hymns and, and the readings in order to call attention to that. But in any case, let me introduce our sermon this morning with some words about, um, two words really, two words that uh, we will use to describe our Heavenly Father, describe our Lord. But I'll start with a question. If I were to ask you, how would you describe yourself? What two words might you choose? Or if I asked you, how would you describe someone else? How would you describe your spouse or your children or a dear friend that you know well? What two words, if you could only use two words, might you select? Now as you think about that question, those questions, and turn them over in your mind, I want to pose a similar question about our Lord. When you think about the God who made us, what two words before all others come into your mind? I want to suggest to you this morning that the two words, two of the words that we heard read this morning from Exodus chapter 34 should be the first to come into our mind. There I'll remind you what you heard read by our brother from Exodus 34 as in that context, Moses is going up on Mount Sinai for a second time to receive the law from God. And in verse 18 and 19 of chapter 33, he had made a request to the Lord, saying, asking that the Lord would show him his glory. Of course, the Lord responded that no man can see me and live, but graciously allowed Moses to glimpse his glory, to see his backside, as it were, and he says in verse 18 of chapter 33, I will make all my goodness to pass before you and will proclaim my name. And then in the words we heard read this morning, as he goes before Moses and he proclaims his name, the Lord, that is Yahweh, or I am who I am. You see, the, the, the name that reflects the fact that he is the God who is. He says this about himself, what he is like, in verse 6 and 7 of chapter 34, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty, visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children's children to the third and fourth generation. And there God says many things about His self, about His attributes. He speaks of His holiness. He speaks of His justice. 
He speaks of His righteousness. But after He declares His name, that He is the God who is, two things that He says about Himself, above all else or before all others, is that He is the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. Now before you say to me, well, those are three words, I will say that the words in the Hebrew text are two. But the word that we translate steadfast love is so rich and so profound that we don't easily find a word to translate it. But it speaks of God's faithful love, His mercy, His grace, all of these things comprehended in a term, in a single word, by which He shows His great love for us. And when Moses asked to see His glory, God went before him and spoke of himself in this way. He's the God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And so it's no surprise as we think through all of Scripture that more often than anything else, when we come to the book of Psalms, the psalmists write, and the people of Israel as they sang the Psalms, sang of God's steadfast love. 127 times in the Psalms, they sing of God's steadfast love. And another 37 times, they sing of His faithfulness. It's not to mention all the times they speak of this using other words. This is the theme of God's interaction with His people. His mercy, His love, His grace, and His faithfulness to do all that He has spoken. And we're going to see those two themes in the text before us. that They come to the fore again as we consider the birth of John the Baptist and the birth of the one to whom he points. So if you found your place in chapter 1 of Luke, in verse 30, excuse me, in verse 57, would you follow along with me as I read to the end of the chapter? Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy to her, and they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, No, he shall be called John. And they said to her, None of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, His name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God, and fear came on all their neighbors. And all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. And his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, 
For you will go before the Lord to prepare His way, to give knowledge of salvation to His people in the forgiveness of their sins, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child grew and became strong in spirit, and he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel. Father in heaven, I pray that you would work in our hearts and minds now to make us to receive your word with gratitude, with joy. As we see these things that unfolded 2,000 years ago and some more, as we think about those things and the fact that they have continuing impact in our lives and will have an impact forever and ever, we pray that you would make us to receive your word with joy and gratitude this morning. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. I want to say a word about the way that prophecy sometimes works in the Bible, the way that the prophets sometimes prophesy, because their work often carries with it the proof of their prophecy. Here's what I mean. If you were to look back to the book of Kings, for instance, where we, we don't see the first prophets, but we see the prophets in their prime, if you will, the prophets in their heyday, as the kings of Israel turn again and again from the Lord their God and lead the people to turn from the Lord their God, God sends them prophets. And what these prophets do very often is they make a number of predictions or they say things that, um, uh, they, they, they pronounce words that have power to them, that bring about some work of God. And some of those predictions and some of those words that they speak have an immediate or near-term fulfillment. Some of those things which they speak, some of those words they pronounce, are for many years in the future. But the things that are fulfilled in their time work as a kind of proof that this prophet is one who was sent by the Lord. Just as Moses taught the people in the book of Deuteronomy how to distinguish a false prophet from a true prophet was simply to look, do their words come true? Well, that's very hard to do when the prophet is speaking of something that's hundreds of years in the future. But when he speaks both of something in the distant future and something in the near term, and that near term reality comes to its fulfillment, then you know this one was sent by the Lord. This one speaks with the authority given to him by the Lord. And so you see sometimes even comical narratives in the book of Kings where prophets are saying things that come to pass right away. And the people, the kings that hear it or the people that hear it, don't seem to care. and They seem very dull and witless about it. And yet those things are the proof that the things that they speak about in the distant future will also surely come to pass. I bring this to your attention because here in Luke's unfolding narrative, we see the proof of God's faithfulness and the fact that things that were spoken, that we've heard preached, that we've read in previous weeks, are already coming to pass in the life of Elizabeth and in the life of Zechariah. I turn your attention back in chapter 1 to verse 13 and 14. There the angel Gabriel says to Zechariah, Do not be afraid, Zechariah. For your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And 
you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. Again, we look down to verse 20 of this passage. It says, and behold, you will be silent. This is in response to the fact that Zechariah has not believed this promise. So Gabriel says, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day, day that these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their time. And so as we turn over to this unfolding narrative, beginning in verse 57, we th see that these things are coming to pass. Several things. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. Right there we see the fulfillment of verse 13. And then we read, And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown her great mercy. And they rejoiced with her. And there we see the fulfillment of verse 14. And we find that Zechariah is indeed mute and cannot speak until the day that the child is named. And Zechariah affirms that name. And then what does the Lord do? He loosens his tongue in fulfillment of what we read in verse 20. And Gabriel said many things about John and many things to Mary about Christ that will not yet be fulfilled in, that await their fulfillment of the Gospel of Luke. And some of those things, we still wait for their fulfillment. But we can be sure that they will surely come to pass because this is the way that God proves that it is His Word. And He is true. And when He makes a promise, He is faithful. The God of steadfast love and faithfulness. And so we see unfolding in this narrative those proofs that enable us, that undergird our faith so that we will trust that indeed God is bringing all things to pass in accordance with His Holy Word. So we see signs and fulfillments in the near term that help us, that assure us of God's faithfulness to bring to completion all that He has spoken here concerning John and concerning Jesus. Now what does... What happens in this narrative then as we see it unfold, besides the fact that we see the fulfillment of, uh, of predictions that have been made? Well, the narrative is designed so that it brings us to a question, a question about John, a question about this child who is born. And it begins, of course, just very understated, in a very understated way, pronouncing that, yes, Elizabeth gave birth, she gave birth to a son, and the neighbors heard of it, and they rejoiced with her because they heard that the Lord who is merciful showed her great mercy. Quite literally, he lengthened or he magnified his mercy to her. He shined a spotlight on his mercy to make it known. And it was so great a magnification that everyone hears of it. And they rejoice with her. And in the course of time, the eighth day comes. And they're going to circumcise the child, which was the natural thing to do. Again, remember early in chapter 1, that uh, Elizabeth and Zechariah are righteous before the Lord, that they keep the commandments of the Lord. And one of those commandments given to Abraham was that every child born to Abraham, born to Jacob, born in the nation of Israel, every son, that is, was to be circumcised on the eighth day. And so they bring the child to be circumcised on the eighth day, and that's when they're going to name him. And what happens is that Elizabeth, of course, declares that his name is to be called John. How she knew that the angel told Zechariah that his name will be John, we don't, we're not told by Luke. And it's not really that important. If Zechariah could ask for a writing tablet now, surely he could have asked for a writing tablet 
during the previous nine months. Also, it's certainly possible that the Lord revealed this to Elizabeth in some way we don't know. It does not really matter, but it is amazing in the course of the narrative that they're in agreement. And, and the part of the amazement is in the suggestion that Zechariah, his, his muteness possibly, not for certain, but possibly carries with it deafness, that maybe he's not aware of all the things that are being discussed and the things that are going on when he affirms that this child's name is John. Again, we can't know for sure whether Zechariah was also deaf. Certainly he was mute. And yet it is amazing the way in which they agree. And the people are, in fact, amazed by that agreement. So Elizabeth insists on the name John in accordance with the word of the angel Gabriel. And the people, their problem with it is that you don't name your son John if there's no John in your family. You name him Zechariah Jr., Zechariah, son of Zechariah. I have family. My family comes from Norway and Sweden. And as I did some family research in my own history and looked back when I came to Norway and Sweden and was looking for ancestors, I found that everyone was Peter Peterson or Olaf Olsen, Olaf son of all. And it became impossible to figure out who I was related to because there were dozens and dozens of Peter's son of Peter and so on and so forth. So that when they came to America, they had to change their last name so that you could discern every single person from one another. Their convention is not so different. You name your son a name that's within the family. You name your son in a way that recognizes his relationship to his father or his grandfather. And yet, here, God is saying, has said through Gabriel, I've chosen his name, and my name is more important because the work that I've given him is more important than him being the son of Zechariah. So Elizabeth insists on the name John. And when they motion to Zechariah. They, they look to him and make signs to him. This is what suggests that perhaps he was also deaf. To find out what does he want, let's ask the father after all. Let, let him be the final say. And he writes emphatically, not his name shall be called John. His name already is. His name is John. It seems that Zechariah has learned something of faith in these nine months of silence. And he's learned, even this man who was righteous before God has learned something of obedience, something of a righteousness that he himself lacked. He's learned to hear and keep the word of the Lord in these intervening months. And immediately then that fulfillment comes and the angel, not the angel, the Lord loosens his tongue and he's able to speak blessing God and this is amazing. Here, this speech is spoken of as a blessing of God, but it's, it's what we have in content here down in verse 67. It's also spoken of as a prophecy. But Luke, remember from the beginning of Luke's gospel, that he has said that this is an orderly account. And yet, the order is not always perfectly chronological. In other words, Luke has taken the content of that blessing and he has put it at the end of this narrative for a purpose, so that the content will function for us as the answer to the question. But the blessing that, that Zechariah speaks, I suggest to you this morning in verse 64, is given to us in content in verse 67 and following. And he, his tongue is loosed and he speaks and he's blessing God. And their response, the response of the people is that fear falls upon them, which is what we see throughout Luke when people see a mighty work of God. We saw Zechariah 
having fear fall upon him when Gabriel came and visited him. And we'll see it later on in Luke's gospel. It's the natural response when people come into contact in some way with the power of God. And here they're witnessing God's divine power, His miraculous power in making a man deaf and then making him to speak again. And as he blesses God, fear falls upon them. Then we're told that all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea, that the people went about. You see that the time marches on, that much time would have elapsed, and that's part of why I suggest to you that the concept of 67, verse 67 and following, takes us back to 64. That people have gone from this place now, and they've chattered amongst themselves, they've gossiped amongst themselves, if you will, talking about the things that happened to Zechariah and Elizabeth. Did you hear about this older couple? Did you hear about this priest and the son that was born to them in their old age? And as they're talking about these things, we're told that all, that, that all who heard them laid them up in their hearts. And in laying them up in their hearts, that is explained by what they say. They ask a question, what then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. We saw earlier in this text, again, I'll draw your attention to it now, the way that they wondered when Zechariah declared his name as John, at the end of verse 63, and they all wondered, and they all had fear fall upon them, and they all went gossiping about it, and they all laid it up in their hearts. There is a characterization here of this people that is important in Luke's gospel because we'll see it again. People lay the words of the Lord up in their hearts. We'll see that Mary is one who treasured all these things which she didn't understand them as she observed the events surrounding the birth and, and childhood of her son. She didn't understand it, but she laid it up. She treasured it in her hearts. The language comes from Proverbs. The sense of the Lord saying, My son, if you treasure my commandments in your heart. It's this wise response to the working of the Lord. And this people is a people that are laying these things up in their hearts. And it's a wondering people, another word that we'll see again and again in Luke, where people wonder, and often when they wonder, and often when they're amazed, it's accompanied by questions about what is the Lord doing? You'll see that in chapter 3. As the people respond to John's ministry in verse 15, as the people were in expectation, they were waiting, that is. Another word that we see again and again, the people waiting or in expectation. And all were questioning in their hearts concerning John whether he might be the Christ. You see, they don't have all the answers. They don't have it all clear in their minds. But this is a people that's waiting and wondering and looking at the working of God. And they're attentive to that work. And they want to know what God is doing. What I'm saying to you is that this is commendable. That their response to it is something that we ought to imitate as we, in our own day, observe time marching on, not in a way that gives into idle speculations, but as we observe time marching on, wondering how is it that God will fulfill His promises in our lives. We'll come back to this idea in, in, in our closing. But I do want you to see these things about how they wonder and how they wait and how they question and lay these things up in their hearts, and we'll see them again in Luke's Gospel. It's the kind of people that we ought to be, awaiting and wondering people, people who treasure the words of the Lord in our heart. And so, in any case, all of that comes to the point of this question, what will this child be? 
for they see that the hand of the Lord is with him. And here, as they ask this question, Zechariah answers it. In the power of the Holy Spirit, he prophesies concerning him. But first, he shows us that the answer to that question is bound up with the answer to another question, one about which we sang this morning. When we sang that hymn, What Child Is This? Not a question about John, but a question about Christ. A question about a child that in our narrative is yet to be born, but is already conceived. And of him, Zechariah says this, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. Notice Zechariah blesses the Lord. And last week I made a point about different kinds of blessing. There's a kind of blessedness where we describe a person's state, what they're like, that they are blessed. The Lord is blessed, but I point out the Bible never uses that particular usage in respect to God. It's a way of saying, I think, I suggesting that uh, the blessedness flows from God, not from anyone to Him. And so we don't say the Lord is blessed in that way. We do say, blessed be the Lord, in the sense of pronouncing a blessing. But we also need to understand what's going on here because the, the character of that blessing uh, and the people who are, the one who's being blessed, the one who is blessing, needs to be considered. Here, you don't have to turn there, but I turn back to Genesis 14 to, to give you an example of how this functions and, and what, what is being said when one blesses the Lord. Here, Abraham, in his life, has just freed his his nephew Lot from captivity, along with several kings who were involved in skirmishes. And out comes another king, a mysterious figure called Melchizedek. And Melchizedek blesses Abraham. He says, Blessed be Abraham by God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth. And blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hands. Now in Hebrews 7, 7, the author of Hebrews makes a point about this blessing to tell us that Melchizedek is greater than Abraham because he says it's beyond dispute that the greater blesses the lesser. He doesn't make this point, but we also need to acknowledge that that does not apply when one is blessing the Lord, obviously, especially considering that Melchizedek blesses the Lord and yet calls him most high. There's not a mostest higher. Melchizedek is blessing the most high. He is the servant of him, the priest of the most high. And so too here, Zechariah calls him Lord, and he blesses him. It's a different kind of blessing. If Zechariah blesses his son, he's, in a sense, imparting blessedness to his son. But when he blesses the Lord, there's a sense where it's praising him and identifying oneself with his purposes. So when Melchizedek blesses Abraham, he imparts a blessing to him, and when he blesses God, after having acknowledged that the blessing flows not from Melchizedek, but through Melchizedek from the Lord to Abraham. He acknowledges his service as a servant of God, and he acknowledges and, and, and is incorporating himself in the purposes of God, that is, submitting himself to the purposes of God. And so in Luke's gospel, those people who bless the Lord and those people who bless in this way are people who are attentive to the working of the Lord, who are who are 
waiting for the fulfillment of his promises, who are in submission to the Lord. And ultimately what it is then is a praise. That in blessing him, he is saying, I am praising the Lord for what he has done, for the blessing that he has imparted to us in a coming son. What is that blessedness then? It's seen in the fact that he's visited and redeemed his people. Notice he speaks in the past tense. Not he will visit and will redeem his people. He has already done it. This is the way the prophets often spoke. Even when they spoke of future events, they spoke in the past tense to reflect the certainty. that It's, it's as if it's already done. It is already done. Because the Lord is utterly faithful to his promises. So he has visited. And this language can refer to both visiting in a saving way and visiting in a way of judgment. And in fact, that same visitation to which we look forward to is one and the same. For us, it's salvation. For those who reject the Lord, it's judgment. The Lord here, though, has visited his people in a saving way, Zechariah says. And that visitation is characterized by redemption. He has redeemed his people. Here the language recalls to our minds the language of Exodus, the way that God redeemed his people. He ransomed his people out of slavery in Egypt and redeemed them to faithful service. We see that idea later on where he says later on that the the redemption is so that we might serve him, in the end of verse 70, 74, might serve him without fear, in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. That was the purpose of the Exodus, to redeem a people out of slavery so that they might go and serve the Lord without fear and holiness and righteousness. And here, what Zechariah then is saying is that in the birth of a coming son, the Lord is going to redeem us. He has, in fact, redeemed us in this coming one. And the reason why it brings redemption is because of the nature of this child. He calls him a horn of salvation. Now when you see that language, know that it's Old Testament language. We see it especially in the book of Psalms. We see it in Psalm 18 where David says that the Lord has been his horn of salvation. We see it also in Psalm 132 verse 17 especially where the psalmist prophesies that the Lord will raise up a horn in the house of David. The language calls to mind the idea of an ox or a ram, and the horn represents its strength. It has royal connotations, therefore. Connotations of majesty, but the kind of might that would accompany a king who is strong. The horn of salvation, therefore, is one in the house of David, a descendant of David who is mighty to save his people, who is strong to accomplish their redemption, who is able to do what is necessary to bring salvation to the people of God. So Zechariah looks to this one and sees it as a great mercy that the Lord has accomplished to show mercy he says in verse 72. And all of that consistent with the faithfulness of God. Literally, he's made mercy. He's done mercy to his people. And he's done that to fulfill what he's spoken in the past. Not only to David, the promises he made to David, but also, he says in verse 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. And again, 
In verse 72, according to the promise to our fathers, that is, he's actually showing mercy to our fathers, suggesting that they are still alive to receive that mercy. And he says that it's a remembrance of a holy covenant, his holy promise that he's made, that holy covenant that God had made to his people. And indeed, it's in accordance with the oath that God swore to Abraham when he swore by himself that he would indeed fulfill all that he promised. In other words, Zechariah is showing us again and again with these words that God's mercy is a fulfillment of that which he's spoken because God is faithful. He does all that he promises. When he says something, when he makes a promise, he is always good for it. And so he blesses the Lord. He praises the Lord. He considers the fact that the Lord will save us from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us. There's a decidedly political aspect to this, this blessing. There will be a redemption that involves the defeat of enemies. And yet as he turns his attention prophetically to his son John and speaks concerning him, he turns his attention to a more pressing enemy, a more important enemy at this moment, the enemy of sin and the enemy that comes with sin, death. In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul speaks of that enemy and he speaks of the fact that when Christ comes again that he will finally put an end to this enemy. <clears throat> he says there in 1 Corinthians 15, and he's going to quote Isaiah from Isaiah chapter 25, about that time when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Paul spoke of a coming resurrection, our resurrection that was guaranteed because of his resurrection and because of his death for our sin. And it articulated the fact that that death and that resurrection is the guarantee of his victory over this most pressing enemy, the enemy of sin, the enemy of death. The one to come in Luke chapter 1, the child yet to be born, is the one who is mighty not only to save from governments and from kings, from tyrants and from evil rulers, but most importantly, he's mighty to save us from the sin that infects our own heart and from the death that must come to us all if we do not find grace and repentance and faith in him. And it's that to which Zechariah turns his attention as he speaks concerning John. He says, you will be called the prophet of the Most High. Recall that we're told earlier in Luke 1 that Jesus would be called the Son of the Most High. John must know his role in this. He's the prophet of the Most High. He's the one who is designated, as we've talked about in weeks before, by the Lord to go be before the Lord to prepare his ways. And he goes before the Lord as God by going before his Christ, the Son of God, and preparing his way 
And here Luke takes up that theme again to give us another aspect of that preparatory work. We saw in verse 17 of chapter 1 that that work is about calling people to repentance by turning the hearts of the fathers to the children and turning and turning the disobedient to the wisdom of the just. We looked forward to Luke chapter 3 and saw that that played out in the way that, that uh, John would call sinners and tax collectors to put aside their sinful deeds and commit themselves to living uh, a, a life of faithfulness, a life of obedience. That that's the nature of repentance, not just saying I'm sorry and doing it again, but saying I'm sorry and making it a continual practice where we confess, we acknowledge our sin before the Lord, and we turn from it. And it is a repeated process in our lives. It's the character of all our lives. Because we stumble again and we repent, we confess, and we turn. But here we see another aspect of that preparatory work in these words, to give knowledge of salvation to His people. To make them know what constitutes their salvation. Because if you only have that first half, you only have the blessing without the prophecy, then you might be forgiven for thinking that this salvation is purely a political salvation. It's only about deliverance from Rome. It's only about deliverance from Herod. But here, Zechariah prophesies that the knowledge of salvation that we must understand, that we must know, has to do with the forgiveness of sins. That knowledge comes in the forgiveness of sins. And so we understand that when John comes and he begins baptizing, he's not washing away their sins, but he's presenting in a symbolic form what they most need. As he calls them to repent, to come embrace the waters of baptism, to be symbolically cleansed of their sins, and then points them to the one who baptizes with the effective baptism that they most need. That here in lies, here lies our salvation in repentance and in faith and in the forgiveness that comes through the one in whom we believe. And all of this, all of this shows what? The mercy and faithfulness of our Lord. Here he says that this is because of the tender mercy of our God, the God who is the God of steadfast love, did not start being a God of love in the New Testament. From Genesis to Revelation and for all eternity, He is the God of steadfast love, love that never ends, mercy that is compassionate, that is deeply felt, tender mercy. Because He's faithful to who He is, and so he's faithful to his promises. And drawing upon the language of Malachi and the language of Isaiah, then he, he pictures the blessedness that comes through that faithfulness and through that mercy in these words, that it's to give light to those who sit in darkness. That language comes from Malachi 4, 1 and 2. Passage that broadly speaks about the coming Elijah, that is the coming John. And here it speaks of the day of the Lord, a day that's coming like a burning oven, and yet for those who are in the Lord, who are in Christ, it comes like the sun rising on people sitting in darkness. It comes like the calm and the sunlight that comes after a hurricane. It comes like Christ as He came into Galilee to a people dwelling in darkness and preached the gospel of the kingdom to them. 
in fulfillment of Isaiah, using those same kinds of words. A light, a light has dawned in Galilee. He does this to give light to those who sit in darkness, those who sit in the shadow of death, and to guide our feet into the peaceful way, to guide us not to warfare and not to difficulty, though he does guide us through difficulty and through struggles, but ultimately to guide us to an everlasting peace where we are enabled to serve the Lord in fear, fearfully, in the fear of the Lord, in holiness and righteousness for all our days. And so he shows us the blessedness and why it is mercy that this is what the Lord is doing, because this is the blessed end to which this is all leading. And in this, we rejoice as we see just one more example of the steadfast love and faithfulness of our Lord. So as we come in our conclusion, in the conclusion of our time together, we need to ask this question, what kind of people ought we to be in light of these realities? To answer this question, we need to be informed by the fact that this is a merged portrait. We need to understand, to put it another way, the relationship between the cross and the crown. For just as the prophets of old spoke often of Christ's first coming and his second coming, coming all at once, here Zechariah does not clearly delineate them as two comings. He is still prophesying on the other side of the cross. He has not seen it. He speaks of the forgiveness that is to come, and he also speaks of the kingdom that is to come. But we know, because we look back to the cross, that there are two comings. That there was a coming where Christ would come to suffer and die and rise, and there is a coming that is yet in the future. And we have to ask ourselves, in this space between, what kind of people should we be? The first answer is to those who may not yet be in Christ, may not yet have believed all this. You're just thinking about it and considering it. And the, an the, que the answer to that question for you is you ought to be in Christ. And the way to be in Christ is to embrace Him with faith and repentance, acknowledging that you are a sinner and you bring nothing in your hands by which you can earn the favor of a holy and righteous God. And yet, in His tender mercy, He sent a Son who took your sin upon Himself and went to a cross and died to atone for your sin, to take all the wrath of God that you deserve upon Himself so that you, by faith, might have life forevermore. This wonderful promise is the gospel. And if you embrace Him by faith, promise is yours. If you are already in Christ, the same question comes to you, what kind of people ought we to be? And here I remind you of the people who rejoice with Elizabeth, people who will see again, the people who went around Judea chattering about what the Lord had done for Zechariah and Elizabeth. We ought to be a watchful people people who are waiting in expectation, a wondering people, not 
speculating about how what we read in the newspaper fits into some kind of end-time structure, but rather recognizing that we have the big picture. He came and he died and he rose and he ascended into heaven. And he will come again and reign forever in victory. On that day, he will topple governments. On that day, kings and governors will bow before him. And in the space between, we're called to watch and wait in faith. We have those answers that most matter. And in the meantime, then, there's a kind of anticipation that is marked by thoughtful contemplation of the things going on around us. And as we contemplate those things, we speak of our blessed hope, the hope of His coming. We don't chatter about the things going on us as though we're trying to feed some itch to know exactly what's going to happen in the days to come, but as people whose hearts and minds are fixed on the one who is sure to come. And the way that this plays out practically in our life is that we are a people that recognize our salvation is complete. As Daryl Bach in his commentary writes, salvation unites the real world with the world of the heart and the world of heaven. To remove any element is to miss the Luke's picture of salvation. To remove the heart and heaven demotes salvation to mere politics. To remove the earthly hope leaves a chasm between justice in the world and individual response to God. God's salvation is not intended to be a private affair, but is designed to show God's greatness to all the creation. Heaven and earth cannot be divorced in redemption. And so we wait for our Lord from heaven, knowing that our salvation is a heavenly salvation where heaven comes to earth, coming with our Lord. We wait for a kingdom that He will establish, not we will establish, but He will establish, knowing that our salvation is to be an earthly salvation and already is an earthly salvation. For He did come preaching the kingdom, but that's a kingdom that is accomplished not with, not with swords and weapons, but is brought in as people embrace the gospel and believe. And now we enjoy the privilege of that spiritual, that heart salvation. The privilege of knowing that our sins are forgiven and having assurance of this. We, not, we ought not to reduce salvation to any one of these three. But hold them all together in tension with that kind of hopeful expectation. As we look forward to what the Lord will do. And so we wait in the knowledge that we need a spiritual salvation. And without which we will not enjoy the privileges of that heavenly and earthly salvation. And in the meantime, we commit ourselves above all other commitments as a church to the progress of the gospel in our world. We commit ourselves above all other commitments to seeing men and women change as they hear the preaching of the word, as they hear us gossip the gospel going around our, our, our neighborhoods and talking to others about what the Lord has done for us, and what the Lord has done for others in our midst. And as we do that, then we see the gospel go forth with might. We see God's saving power, and we rejoice. And what do we do when we face injustices in this world? We remember that 
our Lord said it must be so. That we will face persecution, we will face injustice, he said. And yet these two are those short-term signs that point to the certainty of his coming. When you experience injustice and difficulty in life, know that Christ said it must be so, but he encouraged us saying, take heart. In the world you will have these things, but I have overcome the world. And so we endure those things with joy because we know that they're, they are but for a moment, but his kingdom is forever. And when we are tempted to abandon service of the Lord and holiness and instead to engage in all of the wicked practices of the world, we wait and we watch by turning from those and together encouraging one another and in, 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 together calling one another to continued repentance that we might serve the Lord in holiness without fear. And when we are tempted to fear because the world threatens us, we remind ourselves that all they can do is destroy the body. But we only fear the one who can destroy body and soul in hell. And so we serve him without fear anyway. And this needs to be the character of our life as we watch and we wait for the ultimate completion of these things about which Zechariah spoke. We know that Christ foretold these things, and we know that God is faithful. And therefore, we can watch and we can wait in faith, knowing that if these things must, were, have been fulfilled and are being fulfilled, God who is faithful and God who is merciful will surely do all that he has promised. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you. We thank you and we rejoice in your word. We thank you that you have come, sent your spirit to be in our midst, to guide us, that you have promised your spirit, that you have given us your spirit as those of us who are in Christ and have filled us with your spirit so that we might walk faithfully in in your ways all our days. We thank you, Lord, for your word. We thank you for this word of blessing and word of prophecy. And with these same words now, we praise you, Lord. We say, blessed be the Lord our God, for you have visited us, and you have redeemed us, sending a Savior. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Now let me invite you to turn to, um, in your hymnals to hymn number 86. And let's close by singing of the greatness of the faithfulness of Almighty God. <laughs> 